This is Beyond Species, a podcast exploring issues around speciesism and the struggle to dismantle it. In this episode, we hear from Maeve, whose studies in multi-species kinship focus on the relationships humans have with dogs. Maeve shares information about an ethnographic study of dog lovers who perpetuate racism, particularly with regard to events around 2020's Black Lives Matter protests in the UK. This leads to questions about the links between white supremacy and human supremacy. Maeve also considers the ethic of care to be a compelling avenue worth exploring. While studying, she shakes up the university system and field of anthropology through her decolonial praxis. So if you want to give me an introduction to your research then, and maybe explain a bit about what a multi-species approach is. Yeah, sure. Um, so my research is you know, about multi-species kinship between dogs and their humans. And for me, taking a multi-species approach means that I try to decenter the human as the only thinking and feeling beings that make decisions affecting their day-to-day life. So in studying dog people in Edinburgh, for example, I am hoping to rethink the dog as not just a dog. And that's that's a phrase that comes up in my my research and it came up in my field work quite a few times from my participants you know um, he's not just a dog he's family she's not mm. just a dog she's my best friend so they they clearly occupy positions of kin in so many people's lives so I treat them as such and my theory as well as my politics is kind of founded on this idea that dogs as well as other living beings and even some non-living beings are significant as they are and I think it's it's easy to fall into the trap of turning non-human beings and things into metaphors rather than understanding them as they are. And I want to resist this metaphorization. And as Donna Haraway said, they're not here just to think with, and that's because they're here to live with. And to talk about, you know, the term entanglement, I think I think this is where the concept becomes really important because it signifies how it is that we live with one another. We don't just live alongside each other at a distance or in a vacuum. We live in a way that implicates ourselves with each other in a bit of a mess that involves multitude of other living beings as well as non-living things. Mm -hmm. So for example, when we think about like dog food, we find ourselves thinking about what the best thing for our dogs would be, which is riddled with not just scientific and like nutritional, but moral and ethical questions and concerns. So what we each consider to be the best is quite um, subject to our own values and priorities. So canine nutrition, of course, plays a big role because ultimately the food is for the dog. But so do things like whether the companies that make the food care about labor conditions and rights and the environmental impact of the food that they make and whether they source the ingredients sustainably and ethically. So Mm -hmm. in that sense, entanglement for me means that all of these elements that form a part of the kinship between dogs and their humans, these 
elements that exceed dogs and humans themselves are all inseparably intertwined in a larger economic and ecological web. Thank you. And I suppose I feel like sometimes that that kind of entanglement thinking isn't really very prevalent in like kind of the vegan movement because we kind of still like to put things in uh, boxes, you know, and, and there seems to be like a drive, you know, like, like one of the main kind of themes that I think comes through with like mainstream veganism is, um, you know, leave animals alone. Yeah. And, you know, that's just not possible. Like you say, it, it, we're living interconnected webs of like relationships and um, like physical interactions and stuff. So this concept that we could kind of, I think it gets really problematic when you think of like the abolitionist concept of, because what, do you, especially since there's really not any wild places left. And even when there were wild places, humans were still interacting with non-human animals in those. So we're not going to be able to just like, you know, seal wild animals off in like, well, it would effectively be a game reserve and then just leave them to it. That's just unrealistic, right? Exactly. Yeah, and like like you say, like people consider dogs and cats as part of their family. Yeah, I was, you know, I was I was talking to a dog behaviorist about this as part of my research once, and we were thinking, you know, like we put dogs in this place where they have to rely on us to be fed, to be sheltered, to be cared for, mm-hmm. and that's kind of for me, like inherently unethical, there's a lot of control and exercise of power, Mm -hmm. you know, like just thinking about my dog, I get to control when he eats, when he goes outside, when he does anything really. But you know what, like, so what are we going to do then? Are we just going to set all of our dogs free? Then they're probably going to just die in the wild. Is that ethical? Is that more ethical? I don't think so. Mm -hmm. So in this given situation that, you know, humans created themselves unfortunately i think the most ethical thing that we can do to dogs is to give them a good life to the best of our abilities but that's not to say that that's inherently ethical Mm, yeah and that makes me think as well of the kind of abolitionist position that i think someone like gary francione would take which is that the ideal situation would be because we've brought you know uh kind of created domesticated animals that the right thing to do is to then like make them go extinct Mm. which is i've read like critiques of that which are saying well you're kind of then overwriting the individual's rights as well you know like if you're thinking of on a species level like yeah let's make certain breeds of um dogs go extinct but like what about those you know how how do you choose how to go about that and stuff so it seems really it's not as simple as it's made out to be from the abolitionist perspective oh yeah it's it's a tough problem it's a lot to think about yeah well we can leave that one there for listeners to think about maybe <laughs> um do you want to expand a bit on the kind of the kinship aspect that you'd mentioned um and i noted in like one of your essays focused on multi-species care during the covid pandemic yeah um and it was about like kind of relational care or i suppose it's coming from um maybe like the feminist care ethic 
Yeah. So, so yeah, my, my work with dogs as our kin is built on my own experiences with dogs in many different cultural contexts throughout my life. And I've, I've always loved dogs and I've always considered them to be family, to be kin, even if some of my like older family members were like, what? They're just dogs. Like, what are you talking about? Mm-hmm. Um, in, in terms of my human kin, I, I left home when I was 18 to go to university. So it's been like a decade. And since then, I, I haven't lived in the same continent as my nuclear family. Okay. And with COVID restrictions, I couldn't even hang out with my friends or like go to visit my family. Mm. So essentially, along with my partner, my dog, Frank, has been the physically closest being that I cared for and was cared for by. So he was basically, other than my partner, the only living thing that I could interact with physically and closely every day the pandemic. And that's kind of what brought me to think more about what, what does it mean to care? And I came across this definition by Joan Tronto, and it's care is theorized as everything that we do to maintain, continue, and repair our world, which we seek to interweave in a complex life-sustaining web. Mm-hmm. And thinking about care in that way as this ongoing concrete maintenance and repair work that's inherently relational, yet may not always look like something that we would recognize immediately and categorize as care, such as, you know, like healthcare or in a care home. Um, I think that kind of helped me understand care and by extension kinship as something that's not just nice um, and warm and fuzzy, but vital. Mm-hmm. And it, it, cause it's the things that we do in order to keep living and living well. So situating this theory of care in the current era that's defined by COVID-19, I'm learning to see our kinship with dogs through the lens of this vital relational kind of care that makes our kinship and the various worlds that are implicated in it possible in the first place. For example, like all the routine activities that I share with my dog, like breakfast time, dinner time, going on walks, going on hikes, doing training activities, these are things that kind of push time forward for me in in this era where, you know, time doesn't seem like a real thing. Yeah, totally. And, <laughs> yeah, these, these things keep life moving. It keeps it going somewhere. And those mundane activities are exactly the forms of care that are proving themselves so vital to surviving and even maybe thriving in the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. And I suppose there's maybe something there as well about, you know, how you were saying earlier about trying to decenter the human from like the only kind of being the only kind of subjective viewpoint. It's, I'm, I mean, I'm just trying to think. I don't, I'm not trying to show what I'm trying to say here. Um, there's something about the care that goes both ways, I guess, is what I'm saying. You know, it's like, yeah, it, we can see ourselves as we're caring for the dog mm-hmm. constantly. And, you know, but we obviously get affection and, and love back from from our companion animals as well. Yeah. It's kind of like, say, it's, it's like vital. It's almost like, like the, to flip the way that we think about caring is so important because if it is, you know, if we, we do have that image that it's just the like warm, fuzzy stuff 
but it's not that thing about um, constant repairing of this world that keeps breaking, you know, and that's maybe where the kind of political aspect comes in as well. Yeah. Um, so like if we can move away from the, 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 or kind of develop, I suppose, this concept of care, that would be really powerful, I think, in a political sense. Yeah. Yeah, but it's, you know, it's hard work to unlearn something that's been so naturalized to think about care in this very kind of narrow human way mm -hmm. and to, you know, flip it and be like, oh, actually, dogs care for us too. And not just in, you know, like affectionate, cuddly ways, but by demanding from us things that need to be done for their survival. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Waking up early in the morning and feeding them and taking to the taking them to the vets like that's that's all kinds of care work. But mm -hmm. because they demand that from us, we also get to, you know, wake up in the morning, get dressed, mm -hmm. go to the vets, go outside, get some fresh air. So, yeah. 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 I thought of it that way before, actually. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot to look at there. tell us a bit then about kind of the methods of research or like how you go about your research and I'm referring here to something I read on your website just about decolonizing mm -hmm. research because I think you know I've heard from a lot or read from a lot of sources that um, kind of the university setup is kind of quite a western construct and maybe yeah you know, um, there's kind of like a recolonization of some knowledge there. And so it, it needs to be decolonized. So my, my research method, I use two kinds of related but separate research methods. So first is ethnography and the second is ethography. And mm. I'll talk more about the decolonizing thing in the ethnography part of it, because that's the you know, ethnography is uh, like, if not the research method used by anthropologists, and it involves what we call participant observation, which is basically immersing ourselves in our field sites and hanging out with our participants really long term, like usually it's like 12 months minimum. Mm -hmm. and the goal is to understand the day to day life and to understand the larger culture through this mundane day to day life. But given the history of anthropology, which is a very colonial discipline in that it kind of started because it helped in the colonial endeavor. That is, you know, you could send anthropologists to these other places in the world where the, you know, the British empire hasn't touched yet. And they sent anthropologists, study their culture, tell us how they live, tell us what they do, so that we can colonize them more effectively, so that we can take over their culture. Yeah. And so that kind of legacy doesn't just die out just because the, the empire ended, right? So anthropology just kind of continued being this very white dominant discipline where white people went to places that were not dominantly white and then studied their culture. And I'm not, I'm not white, I'm Korean. And that's, that's something that bothered me very profoundly from the beginning of my education in anthropology, because, you know, I just, I just never saw white people being studied. 
yeah. that was just not, not a thing mm-hmm. like and and it, implicitly what that does is it naturalizes white culture as the norm it's not something worth studying because everybody knows it it's mm-hmm. normal it's a normal thing it's not a weird thing which then needs to be studied to be understood mm-hmm. but for me obviously um white people are not normal <laughs> <laughs> yeah totally wow that's that's gonna sound really bad taken yeah. out of context. <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's not normal for me in that you know that's not all I was ever exposed to that's not what I grew up with hmm. and even though I've lived in what can I guess quite re- like reductively be called the west for most of my life now there are still things that I'm just like what are they doing why do they think this way? Why do they act this way? Mm-hmm. But when you bring those kinds of questions to anthropology, there's a lot of resistance. Mm-hmm. And not necessarily like explicitly racist kind of resistance, but, you know, kind of those nudges being like, oh, but like, have you, have you considered studying something more, you know, exotic? Mm-hmm. Have you considered... Someone, someone actually asked me if I considered studying my people. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> but that's really common. And that's, that's mm. the you know, messed up thing about anthropology. That, and, and it's not even just people suggesting these things, which, you know, ultimately, like, I've learned to kind of brush off because it happens so often. But it's, it's the politics of funding. It's mm. who, like, what kinds of projects get money to be conducted and what kinds don't. Like, I am not funded. I'm, I'm, I'm a self-funded PhD student. Mm because no one would fund a project that studies like middle-class white people and their dogs, because that's just not good enough for anthropology, not anthropological enough. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So there's a lot, there's a lot to that. Yeah. So I am trying to decolonize by praxis. Mm -hmm. So me being a non-white person setting out to study a pretty dominantly white society and to focus more on the notion of whiteness the concept of whiteness it's I think an act of decolonization that I would like to see in anthropology so I'm kind of pursuing that myself okay yeah it's not not easy (laughs) I can imagine and yeah that's really quite interesting it's like turning the lens back on whiteness Mm -hmm. because whiteness really doesn't want to look at itself mm-hmm. because I think yeah. that's going to be well that's when you know there's no excuses anymore to start dismantling mm-hmm. white white supremacy um and I guess a lot you know a lot of, about the university set up kind of like you say through funding and um kind of which projects are elevated kind of upholds white supremacy in that way yeah and and obviously that's not to say that like every individual involved in the university think mm-hmm. that way that's yeah. not true yeah. but even if individuals don't think that way the university system at large will kind of steer them towards that kind of thinking yeah you know lots of like institutional pressure saying things like that's just not how we do things mm-hmm. they love saying Mm. yeah Yeah. it's like that's just not that's just not how it's done or um or that's just how it is you know when you when you complain about 
instances of racism or microaggression or whatnot. They're just like, well, that's just how it is. That's just, that's just anthropology. That's just in our history. Like, yeah, but why don't we fix it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Okay. And uh, the second yeah. <laughs> research method, <laughs> ethography, is um, so Tom Van Doren and Deborah Bird Rose defines ethography as an approach grounded in attentiveness to the evolving ways of life of diverse forms of human and non-human life in an effort to explore and perhaps restory the relationships that constitute and nourish them. Okay. And I think that kind of links back to what we were talking about, about decentering humans. I think it's to say that I, I try to move beyond understanding humans as the only beings that have narratives. I think this, the word that I really like in that definition is restory. Because even when I'm doing ethnography and I'm interviewing people and listening to the ways in which they describe their own lives, things that happen to them, it's it's not just my participants, it's all humans, right? Like they have, I guess an easy way to say it is, it's something that my partner said, that people are never villains in their own story. Mm. And I'm not saying that my participants are villains, um, mm -hmm. but it's... It's that people, I have to grant people the agency to tell me their own stories, even though that is not what I see. Mm. People have the right to that. People see their lives in a certain way, the way that I see my life in a certain way. It's, mm. it's packaged in a specific kind of story or a specific kind of narrative, and they are free to tell me what they, you know, what they think mm. and what their story is. But to kind of expand that to non-human animals, I think is really interesting, um, especially to very closely domesticated animals like dogs, where people do have this kind of like intersubjective relationship with, right? People speak on behalf of their dogs. Mm -hmm. They, you know, jokingly or not, like it's this like weird phenomenon that I really witnessed throughout most of my interviews. It's, it's when I talk to people's dogs the dog human responds to me on behalf of the dog, but as the dog. Oh yeah. Yeah. And I, I do that too. You know, I talk on behalf of Frank as Frank. So when people are like, oh, like, oh my gosh, like, would you like a treat? And I would be like, oh yeah, of course I do. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. I see that. Yeah. yeah. And, and I think, ethography is a really interesting method to kind of understand that through yeah. what kind of intersubject intersubjective understanding there is between dogs and humans and what kinds of practices is this understanding involved in things like that mm. yeah that's really interesting about how can we listen to non-human animals to let them tell their own stories because there's a lot of kind of I guess like discourse around that in like activist circles with like you know in the kind of mainstream vegan um, approach there's the whole thing about animals being voiceless and saviorism and stuff like that and there's people kind of pushing back against that and saying actually you know animals can resist their own or some animals can resist their own oppression and um you know, let's, they've got individual personalities and you need to give them, like, if you can get them to a sanctuary, they can express that and all that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but I guess people speak for their 
companion animals a lot without even thinking about it because mm -hmm. we, we we feel like we know them so well right yeah yeah and and we do that's undeniable mm -hmm. you know, we know our pets very very well we know their personalities we know their preferences like i know for a fact that my dog will almost always choose meat-based treats over peanut butter that's the kind of dog he is that's that's what he likes whereas for other dogs i have no idea really unless i hang out with them for a very long time and get to learn these things. Content warning. In the next segment, Maeve and I discuss racism in some detail, particularly regarding Black Lives Matter. So moving on, you've uh, written an essay called The Ugliness of Multi-Species Intersubjectivity, Pandemic Racism and the Love of Animals in the UK. Did you want to expand or kind of give an introduction to what that was about? Sure. So it was a digital ethnographic essay, which was based on my experience and my observations on this Facebook group in that space in the UK, which is kind of strange to say because ultimately like anyone can join it. The only questions that they ask is like, are you based in the UK? And if you say yes, they let you in. So you, you can lie really. But most people there were based in the UK. And basically the only thing that brought them together was their love of dogs. And it it's usually a very um, fun group, very like, I would say like almost non-political group where people shared their dog pictures, they shared dog related news. But then I think this summer-ish, it just kind of started changing little by little, mm -hmm. uh, coinciding with Black Lives Matter protests across the US as well as the UK. And I've been seeing a lot of memes that link dogs and racism. And the first one that I saw was, um, you maybe you've seen it too, it's kind of everywhere. It's this like picture of like five different Labrador retrievers, but of different colors. Oh no, I don't think I've seen that. Yeah, I know, you can see where it's going. Yeah, right. totally. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it says, we are all the same animal, racism is stupid. And I'm like, like I get the sentiment. That's a very simplistic way of understanding race. And clearly like, yes, it says racism is stupid. They're trying to, be anti-racist I guess that's their attempt at it but the thing is when they are called out for being very racially insensitive because dog breeds and dog coat colors are nothing like human race they don't listen to that kind of pushback they don't listen to people who challenge them mm. and they say well the intention was good mm -hmm. the and behind it was that we want to spread awareness about how bad racism is mm. when in fact that meme itself is quite racist mm -hmm. and then the second meme that I saw that was quite shocking to me was um it was about Black Lives Matter protests specifically and it depicted a person who's about to throw a brick at a police horse mm -hmm. and the caption was i don't care if you're white or black if you hurt police animals so if they they said if you hurt canine animals you should be shot 
That was the question. I like, I was shocked. I was just scrolling down my, you know, my feed as I always do, just trying to relax in the evening. And then that's what I saw. And I, you know, got kind of sucked into reading all of the comments, which I should not have done. Those comments and how it kind of unfolded was the basis of this essay because shockingly the post garnered like hundreds of likes within a few hours and most people who commented were like yes I agree with this 100% people who hurt police animals should be shot and some people even went above and beyond that and saying that you know Boris Johnson should deploy the military to to control the mob that is Black Lives Matter protesters and and they kind of evoked a lot of like nationalistic thoughts and ethos and it just got very very uncomfortable I I tried to kind of take a back seat don't say anything but well, then I couldn't, and then I said something, and then they kicked me out of the group. <laughs> oh wow! Got yeah. kicked out. Yeah, I got kicked out. Uh, I got kicked. classic. Yep. Yeah. And they called me racist because I wasn't <laughs> understanding. <laughs> yeah. So it's it's yeah. a whole thing, right? Um, and that's how this essay came about. It's based basically entirely on that thread, um, that came after the meme. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I really saw this this link between white supremacy and human supremacy and human exceptionalism, I, I guess. Um, and, and it really kind of was an opportunity for me to see clearly that supremacy or exceptionalism in any kind kind of conceptualizes the world in a strictly hierarchical form and perhaps more problematically, it naturalizes this hierarchy. So they mm. say that in the racial hierarchy, well, they don't explicitly say that, but then they, they hold this view implicitly or not, um, that white people in the racial hierarchy are at the top and in the species hierarchy, humans are at the top. And that's just how things are. Mm-hmm like you obviously there's no scientific or methodologically sound way to explain why it is because that's not true it's just Mm -hmm. not but Mm -hmm. in their understanding of this hierarchical world that's just how it is and how do you argue with someone whose core belief is Mm -hmm. undisprovable because that is just what they believe, no matter what. It's an unconditional belief that that is how things are. Hmm. And what this means is that those who claim to be at the top of the hierarchy can exercise some really brutal forms of power and control over those that are not at the top. So white people using this kind of racial hierarchy model justify violence against black people and people of color and humans justify violence against animals, non-human animals in this way. And, you know, of course, this isn't to say that each of these forms of power, um, like white supremacy and human exceptionalism, manifests in the same way. They don't. Um, But we also can't really ignore that there are parallels. And it's, this is not a new idea. People have written about this many, many times, that there are so many parallels between oppression of animals and oppression of um, Black people, especially enslaved Black people. Mm -hmm. 
like you were saying earlier about entanglement, it, things are messy, mm-hmm. you know. And I suppose with hierarchy, I wonder if it's something that it kind of makes life simple for people. Yeah. You know, and it's like you don't have to worry about all the all the messiness. You can just you can like focus on where you are, where you yeah. fit in, and then you know what you, you, where other people fit in. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was there's a quote from the essay here, um, which is interesting. The police animals were deemed innocent, like in quotes, innocent, and as one commenter put it, quote, just doing their jobs. Mm-hmm. And so there's that thing about how people were not even recognizing that animals used by the police are oppressed mm-hmm. as well. So they were like cheering on the police and saying yeah you know police horse police dog they're just like like police as well they're just doing their jobs yeah they're they're and and they're they're totally innocent here yeah and they're all upholding the law whilst calling for like you know the death of, of of black people and so on um so there's that thing about not even recognizing like not even understanding like animal oppression yeah in that way you know yeah, there there are there were commenters who were like, wait, so if you care about animal liberation and animal rights, why are the police bringing them into these situations in the first place? Mm-hmm. Why are they using them in riots and protests and potentially volatile situations, knowing that they could easily get hurt? Why don't the police take at least part of that responsibility? And they, they don't have any kind of nuanced answer to that, right? They're just like, oh, well, that's their job. And some people actually say that, you know, they enjoy it, that animals enjoy having a job. They enjoy having, mm. you know, a very set role and activities and goals to fulfill. Mm-hmm. And I think mm-hmm. that's such, <laughs> such a projection. Yeah. In, in a very scary way too. I'm like, really? You think that dogs really feel fulfilled going into these situations and like mm. attacking people that they're told to attack? Like mm. maybe given that, you know, it's dogs doing what their handlers tell them to do. And mm-hmm. presumably they're trained to feel some good positive feelings from it because they're literally trained through positive reinforcement and if mm. you do something right you get you get a treat you get praised and they learn to associate it that way but it's kind of ridiculous and silly to say like to place that kind of weird moral framework onto these dogs that oh like these dogs love doing their jobs mm-hmm. yeah as if as if the police dogs kind of know that they're on you know the side of the law which yeah. equals the, the moral the morally right ones that's a good that's a good dog right exactly. compared to uh quote you know bad dog which would be some of the dogs um that you might see you know a, a black man walking down the street with and that's how there's something along there about their how animals are racialized and and vice versa the animalization of of um people who aren't white right yeah and this this goes back to this intersubjective linking right that animals inherit their, you know, dogs inherit their race and even class from their humans. And humans, some humans, on the other hand, are animalized. 
Yeah, and I was I was reading in the essay that 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 kind of thinking came about like after the Enlightenment. Yeah, so Harriet Ritvo, who's like an animal historian, she she wrote about how breeds like dog breeds kind of came about and mm-hmm. how those that development of breeds mapped really closely onto the class structure in Britain. Mm-hmm. And it was basically that like certain kinds of people owned certain kinds of dogs. And, you know, the whole history of dog breeding kind of, it's copied from like horse breeding and livestock breeding, but mm-hmm. obviously like horses and livestock are way more expensive than dogs. Mm-hmm. So it was dog breeding was kind of like a way for middle-class people to partake in this, this practice of like manipulation of nature that mm-hmm. only the upper class who were really rich were privy to when it came to larger animals. Mm-hmm. And so dogs just kind of, <laughs> dog breeds just kind of ballooned in that way because there are obviously more middle-class people than upper-class people, I think. <laughs> and mm-hmm. they are easier to handle than horses, say. Mm-hmm. And they were kind of, you know, like through the process of domestication, they were kind of genetically engineered to love us kind of no matter what. Yeah. And so people just kind of bred them. At first they were bred for function. So for hunting, for, you know, like catching rats and whatnot. Hmm. But it kind of took a turn and it became more about manipulating what they look like and what their temperaments are and like how far can we humans push this species to look like what we want them to look like Hmm. and I think that's kind of where it went wrong (laughs) because selective breeding was now like in hyperdrive there's just like these are the traits that we want and we will you know we will do basically anything to get there and that's why we have spe- like we have breeds like like pugs <laughs> and french bulldogs mm. and i i'm not saying i don't love them i'm not saying that all pug and like brachycephalic dogs owners are unethical cuz they love their dogs they really do like as individuals they just they'll do anything for their dogs but on the breed level and on the species level i feel so bad whenever i see a pug because I know that they can't breathe properly. Mm. I know that, you know, their corkscrew tail, that's like a signature look for them, causes spinal problems. And mm. just the other day, I, I saw a pug owner, the pug looked quite old, and he was having a really, really hard time. And I think he, like the owner was carrying the dog to the, to the vet, because the dog was just like shaking uncontrollably. And mm. it was just like, oh my God, like, what have we done to them? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's kind of like a human vanity project in a way, because like we've wanted to control nature to that degree um, based on what we think is aesthetically pleasing yeah. so that you've got people walking down the street carrying a dog that kind of matches their outfit almost or is like you know trendy or fashionable or whatever 
speaking of fashion, I, I actually, I've, I've spoken to a dog boutique owner as part of my research. And okay. she told me that she has to keep up with these human fashion trends. So she like, she watches like Milan Fashion Week, Paris Fashion Week, New York Fashion Week, because those trends inevitably, unfailingly trickle down to the dog world. Wow. So she told me that, you yeah. know, just a few years ago when like, I think the Pantone color was like millennial pink, which is like a, a blush pink kind of color. She mm -hmm. could not sell, like she, she, it was always out of stock. People just could not stop buying that shade of dog accessories because that was what was trending in the human world. Mm. And like Chevron pattern, which was in trend a few years before then, just it went out of fashion. And she couldn't sell any that had mm. anything Chevron on it. Mm. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> that's, that's bizarre. It really is. Is there anything else in the essay? Like you've kind of said what, what's kind of worrying about this, but is there, was there anything hopeful that comes, came out of it that you think, um, you know, here's a, here's a way we can make some progress on this issue in terms of like dealing with the link between human supremacy and like racial supremacy? Yeah, I mean, I think that the first step to any kind of good thing is to recognize what is bad about what we currently have or what is mm. problematic, not necessarily bad, because it's, mm. um, yeah. So I am, I'm really generally like wary of universal theories and general statements because anthropology just trains us not to think in terms of that. Mm. But I think, you know, the, the bad thing that we are recognizing is that there is this common tendency across many human cultures that humans tend to think that what makes humans humans is that we're not animals mm. and yes like biologically speaking yes we are but you know we say things like oh but humans have culture we're civilized we do this we do that and anything to set us apart from the rest of the animal kingdom but i think recognizing that kind of well for me at least it, it made me think about how silly that is mm. how arbitrary that is and that's, I think that's really important to like understand the cultural arbitrariness of the separation between animals and humans. Mm. And I think once we kind of recognize that to go back to, you know, the, the topics of veganism, to go back to the topics of like whiteness and racism and animal rights, that we, when we, when we see that ha like this is just what humans kind of made up for, like to make themselves feel better generally, mm -hmm. We can kind of, we can try to think about the whole system in a different way, to think about the entanglement in a different way. Mm. And I think my hope personally is to change this dominant view of um, like animal, human, or white, non-white hierarchy to understanding why it came to be the way that it is. Mm -hmm and what kind of cultural and natural implications that might have for us and as well as animals. Mm -hmm. 
and hopefully move forward with kind of a new philosophy that fundamentally sees our relationship to the rest of the animal kingdom and the world in a different way. The last question I was going to ask you was to have a think about, you've maybe kind of answered it a little bit of this in, in, in the end of that question previously to that, but what do you think good anti-speciesist advocacy might look like, as in how do we get the public on side and move beyond the kind of go vegan message? Mm -hmm. And can we move beyond the kind of um, the, the demands to power that animals should have legal rights, you know, thinking about alternatives like the care ethic and so on? Yeah, I, I think it kind of goes back to the reason why I decided that methodologically, I wanted to do a combination of ethnography and ethography. So to advocate on behalf of non-human animals, for me, means to recognize that they're deserving of care as living, thinking, and feeling beings, and not just because they're useful to us in, and, and not just like in utilitarian ways, but, you know, even, you know, people who keep pets because they, they get affection from pets. But for me, that's that's still kind of exploitative. <laughs> mm, yeah. That you know, like in that kind of like line of thinking, there isn't really room for the pet to behave otherwise. Mm. If our expectation for our pets is that they give us affection, and that's why we keep them. If they don't give us affection, they become bad pets. Mm. And I don't think that is fair to the animals because we're not giving them any kind of individual agency or to, to not behave in a way that we want them to. Like we would never expect that. And we shouldn't expect that from other people, you know? Mm -hmm. And this is like, for me, you know, like you said, it's, it's less about assigning them legal rights. Although I'm not saying that that's not necessarily a bad thing to do because it, mm -hmm. you know, one step at a time I guess mm -hmm. and but it's it's yeah like I said in the the last question it's it's more about fundamentally shifting the ways in which we think about non-human beings as you know currently dogs and cats like any kind of animals non-human animals that we own are considered property right yeah like if they got stolen from us we can report mm -hmm. them as stolen goods mm -hmm. and even like pet insurance is kind of like it's very, it's too similar to like, like renter's insurance, yeah. like health insurance, that like, yeah. if something happened to them, they'll pay out. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think, you know, given our, given our connected histories, I understand why it is that it came to be this way. But now that we're recognizing that there might be some ethical and moral concerns with the ways that we currently think about them, I, I hope that we can undo our our thinking and try to understand them as beings that have their needs have their wants and those needs and wants should be respected to to a degree at least <laughs> hmm. yeah totally to like to the best degree that we can get it yeah you know, you know like I said like 
what are we going to do just set them free in the wild like no they're going to mm. die if we do that that's not ethical mm. either but within the framework that we have what is i think the important thing is that we we keep grappling with this ethical question and not just you know let it take the back seat or try to reduce it to legal problems mm. yeah i think that's the problem that that some people have with rights um is that you know like rights can confine the situation you know so like once you define those rights that's that mm -hmm. but actually the, the the ethic of care is that we need to constantly keep you know re revisioning and, and and asking ourselves those questions you know is this really the right thing to be doing and also it's contextual okay. whereas rights can are sort of universal right it's like so wherever you are in the world whatever culture or whatever this one particular thing should apply mm -hmm. And that can be a problem. Yeah, I think, I mean, obviously they're they're related, but I think that's kind of the main difference in what I see as like a legal way of thinking and a political way of thinking. And I lean very much toward political way of thinking.